If you would, go to John 5. We're going to read 17 and 18. John 5, actually go to 15, please. So the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Go to verse 26 now. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He, he has also granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now go to 37. Let's read 37 and 38. So as and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, and his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. If this is your first time with us today, we just several weeks ago finished a three-year study of walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And so as I was taking our time through that process, I began to really notice some things that Jesus said about his life, about how he had certain parameters in regard to how he lived his life, what guided his day-to-day life. And so we are in these weeks kind of walking back through some of these themes. We began that last week, and so we will spend our time in John chapter 5, and then in a little bit at the end, um, we're going to go to the book of Amos. And so in case you're wondering where in the world is the book of Amos, go to Matthew and go 10 books to the left, and you will find uh, the prophet Amos. There's nine chapters there, and and we're going to finish up our time there today. So let me give us the context of what we're going to see that we just read a while ago and so that we will understand why Christ was saying the things that he was saying. Jesus, in John chapter 5, there's going to give a great contrast for us. We're going to look at the lives of the broken, where they go to find hope, and, and the false places they go to find hope. And so John is going to contrast where they go 
false superstition, man's tradition, man-centered ideas. And then we're going to see Jesus, how he lived his life. What guided him every day? What was his focus? What did he set his mind on? Where did he stand? Where did he sit? Um, how did he walk? What was his mind stayed on? And so, so we're going to see that as we walk through the text today. And so in those statements that we read a while ago, Jesus defines for us what dominated his life, what guided him in every kind of way. There is a way that we can live even in our work, even in our driving, in our recreation, to have our mind fixed on the truth of Christ. That we are lost and consumed in the glory of who He is. That there's a way to walk in obedience to Him. Our supreme model, Jesus, did that. It's the way that He lived every day. His mind fixated and immersed deeply in the will and the glory of His Father. So the context this morning... In John 5 is going to reveal the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus to do God-sized, God-ordained work that men cannot do. Only works that God can do. And so before we even begin to dive deeply into those things, I want, to, I want to kind of set the stage of the contrast that is here in the text. This man, John 5, that Jesus heals had been paralyzed for 38 years. Day after day, he would gather in a place where there were these covered colonnades and he would gather with other people like him, other people with other sicknesses and illnesses, hoping that there was a tradition that had come along that said this, that an angel would come and would stir the waters. And when the waters were stirred, if you could get into the waters first, you could be healed of whatever infirmity that you have. And so day after day, this group of broken people who couldn't find any kind of medicine to help them, any doctors, any kind of thing during the day, they would either be brought there, guided there, they would come there on their own, and they would gather, vying for a space, sitting down there, hoping to get into the water first so that they could be healed. It's a devastating story. It's not unlike many of the stories that we hear in our culture today. For there are many people who go to religious settings hearing a message that sounds good and maybe even sounds right a bit. But the reality upon examination is that that message and that truth or that supposed truth is not going to bring any kind of healing at all because that truth doesn't connect someone to Jesus. So they're in the shadow of the temple with no religious leaders coming along and saying, This water is not going to heal you. It is not going to fix you. Day after day after day in the shadow of the temple, nobody was speaking to the truth. You're not going to get your healing here. Only God can do this healing. And it is in that situation and in that setting that Jesus comes along. By the way, valuing the one. Jesus values the one. He seeks the one that's lost from the ninety-nine. That is Him. And on this day, there are who knows how many people gathered by these pools hoping for healing. They are not gathering around a biblical principle, but they are gathered around a man-made story that had become a legend that produced false hope. 
You can go back and you can look at the hist historical books and the teaching and, and, and just aspects about this. There's no record of anybody ever being healed by these waters. And yet here you are seeing people day after day after day after day gathering, not under a biblical principle or a biblical mandate, but gathering, hoping for something that is never going to come from those waters. And so here they all are fighting for a space, trying to find a place to fit in, trying to find a place for their brokenness. And it is in this setting that Jesus comes. And I want to remind you and I today of this truth. This is the exact working of false religion and false faith. It will only enslave people to an ideology and to a thinking that, that they can find some kind of hope connected with that and so again day after day they are gathering there no answers were coming week after week month after month year after year none of their friends none of their peers nobody else who was gathering there they never saw anyone healed no one and yet they gathered week after week month after month and year after year and what upon appearance it's a sad state is it not to picture that Seeing people coming, believing something that is not true, hoping that it would change their life. The appearance is it's a depressing place full of broken people. But there's great news in the midst of brokenness. Jesus comes along, and what does Jesus do when He comes along? He brings healing. He brings hope into those kind of settings. The man was there. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Did a little math. That's 456 consecutive months, 13,680 days, no change, false belief. And it's when Jesus steps into the place that everything changes for him. This is what Jesus does. So many of us in the room this morning have been transformed by the reality that God is real, that God loves that God can transform bodies. God can transform minds. He can bring healing where there's sickness. He can bring restoration in relationships. He can bring hope to the hopeless. He can communicate and clearly open our eyes that we see that He ultimately is this answer. And so I want to, with that in mind, this False hope that many were gathered by, believing in, never finding direction. I want to show us now in the life of Jesus how He lived such a singular, focused life. He didn't come, and I want to note this in the very beginning, and I may even come back to the statement. When you read the Gospels, Jesus didn't spend a lot of His time being an agenda Christian being an agenda person. He had one centered focus, singular focus of his life, and that was to know the Father, walk in the Father's ways, fix his eyes on the Father, communicate the truth, live in the truth, join the Father in what he was doing. He didn't spend his time trying to reform the Roman government to deal with all the Caesar problems. He didn't spend his time trying to reform the priesthood which needed deep reform. He knew this, and we must come to that place. Jesus knew 
the greatest hope in his generation and the greatest hope in every generation in the future is that people would come into a relationship with him. He had come to reveal the Father. And so in salvation, there would be life that is birthed on the inside. There would be families, whole families would come to believe. They would be transformed. There would be this this unity would come in salvation and knowing who God is. And so Jesus knew that for that to come about, that His deepest, highest passion would be to know the Father and to walk in obedience to the Father. And the fruit of that is everything that you and I have come to know. So let's walk through this. Here's the first principle this morning. This is the singular focus of Jesus. And we'll make some application along the way to our lives. Jesus lived as the Father lived. Look at 17 and 18 again with me. So Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, He healed the man on the Sabbath, that He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Here's the thing with Jesus. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time with each of these principles, so, so listen carefully this morning. Jesus fixed His eye, had His eye on the Father. And so when He saw what the Father was doing, He would join in what the Father was, was about. So on this day, in John 5, on the Sabbath day, all of these broken people gathered around there. Jesus comes under the covered colonnade. He sees this man whose hope was, can I get into the water? Jesus comes along. He, he finds the one. He has the man turn to Jesus as Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus just tells him, you don't need the water. You need to obey my voice. And this is what I'm telling you. You pick up your mat right now and you go. And the most amazing thing, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? 38 years he has not stood firm on his feet. And at the word of Jesus, he stands up and he picks up his mat. And what do you do in a moment like that? Well, he's walking around the temple. Where do you go? What do you do? And I think he's so shocked at the work of what Christ has done that the Father was about that. Listen, the Father was about the healing of this man. So what did Jesus do? He joined in what the Father was about. And he healed this man. Probably a month ago, I had somebody tell me that this man... Um, Jesus didn't call him to repentance and Jesus didn't call him to faith. And I absolutely disagree with that because later on in John 5, Jesus finds the man in the temple and says, look, you're made well. You, you go and sin no more. Don't live the way that you were living before. You walk with God. You pursue God. Jesus called him into relationship. So Here's the application for us. If day after day Jesus lived with his heart and his mind fixated and deeply immersed in the activity of his Father, how do we now live? Well, we live in the same way. Now, let's be honest. We don't have the the ability to see God at work the way Jesus was able to see his Father at work. 
That's pretty hard for us. Jesus could do that. They were one. They were intimate. But there is a way to do that. We have all experienced that reality of walking with God. And when some situation comes up, we don't panic. We walk with God. We think about the truth. We think about past experiences, how He has intervened in those things. We know that He is faithful. Then He can do it again now to do something to remind us or to strengthen us in the moment. So here's what we do. How do we know what God is up to today? How do we know what God's up to in the room today? We know this by reading this. Jesus becomes our model. Walked intimately with the Father in every kind of way. Perfect life. Never sinned. So we, we read about Him. We become experts about Him. We see what He did when He went into certain places. How did He deal with hypocrisy? How did He deal with a, a woman who had been married multiple times, now living with someone who's not her husband, and how He tenderly spoke with her and called her out in regard to allowing her to see that what she was seeking for, for satisfaction, was, no, was never going to bring that. And so Jesus touches it. She's transformed and she's changed. And God uses her to go into the village and call people back out who come to believe in who Jesus is. We must be the kind of people who understand the life of Christ and the mind of Christ that we live the way Christ lived. We see the world the way He did. And I know this is a broken record in this room, and I'm glad that you like this broken record. The only way, the only way that we can know what Christ thought and what He did is to immerse ourselves in this book. There's not another way. And when we do so, we began to live as Jesus lived who immersed his life, fixated on the glory of his Father. Now in the text, here's the reality. I hope you know this, that religious people can make Christian symbols and things of Christianity an idol. They had made obeying the Sabbath an idol. Jesus came along and said, no, y'all have got the Sabbath all wrong. And so God was always at work every day. Even on the Sabbath, God was at work. So on this day, Jesus gives evidence that the Father, though He instituted the Sabbath day for rest, you still do good on what day? On the Sabbath day. So Jesus just interjects Himself in this false man-made idea idol about the Sabbath day. And he speaks about it and he makes affirmation that I am, yes, equal to my Father. Yes, that is exactly what Jesus, what they thought he was asserting was exactly what he was asserting. And he knew that they wouldn't like that, but he did it anyway. So let me just remind you and I before we move on to point two this morning that our faith is to be an active faith. When you read the life of Jesus, he went places, he did things. And so we must become experts on all aspects of Jesus' life. As Jesus lived in pursuit of the Father, so are we to live in pursuit of Jesus just as He did. We live as He did. We speak, speak as He spoke. We stand where He stood. We 
confront the hypocrisy of false religious systems, even when they are within Christianity, we speak out against them. Our eye is ever to be on Jesus. So our faith is to be active. We need to get to the place like Jesus did. He says, my father, we need to speak. A lot of talk today's world about pronouns. I'm not going to go that direction with the pronouns, but we need to speak personal pronouns about our relationship with God. Jesus is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my shepherd. He is my guide. We need to speak those kinds of words. Jesus, all through four Gospels, spoke to the Father like that. Our Father. My Father. I know Him. We are to speak in this personal language about our relationship with Him. And I'll say this, and we'll come to the end as well. When we get to the end, we'll talk about this as well. We are to live as Jesus lived, regardless of what anybody thinks. Jesus knew on that day that who was not going to be happy about what He did? The religious leaders. So they did not do it because He was afraid of offending their feelings? No. We are to live as Jesus lived, regardless of how people respond to that of their opinions. One last thing before we move to point two. Jesus, when he was here, did not aim to live his life like Moses. He did not aim to live his life like Daniel or Jeremiah or David or Malachi. All of them. Great men had fixed their eyes on who? God. They were greatly used because their eyes were fixed on God. Jesus here fixed his eyes on the Father, not on other men. And this is important for us. We should learn from as many godly people as we can learn from. Amen? Read great biographies of people who have gone before us, who faithfully lived in their generation when the times were tough. Learn from the men and women who did that. But we don't want to become like them. We want to be like Jesus. Why? Because that's God's ordained purpose for us, is that we would be like Jesus. And so here the Father um, guided Christ. Christ fixed His eyes. He lived as the Father lived. Secondly, this morning, kind of connected with that, the reason Jesus lived in the manner that He did, knowing what the Father was up to, is because He was intimately connected and fixed His eyes on the Father in every way. So look at 19. So Jesus said to them, He's responding to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and He shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. And so I want you to see again, I want you to see this. Just this singular-minded focus of Jesus. The Father, the Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. What's the Father doing? What's the Father saying? What's the Father saying? Then I'm going to say that today. What's the Father doing today? I'm going to get involved with what the Father is doing. I'm going to immerse my life in every aspect of the Father. Jesus never did anything without the direction of the Father. And here's why. He had implicit 
complete trust in his Father every moment of the day. So if the Father said, do this, Jesus said, this is good, I'm going to do this. So when we see in the Scripture that we are commanded to do things, we are commanded to do those things because they are for our good. And when we do those things, they are for our good. They're for the good of our family. They're for the good of our marriages. They're for the good of our neighbors, our co-workers. Everything that God is up to and what God is doing, when we embrace the commandments and we walk on them, we trust that, that this is good. This is why Jesus lived the way that He lived. He trusted the Father every moment of the day. Every word, every instruction, everything that He saw. He knew that the Father was completely good. So Jesus settled His mind and His heart and His life on the things that the Father was about. Now I want to deal with an idea that comes out of this. This is sometimes taught in bad Christian circles. Is the reason that the Father gave Jesus some boundaries that He can't say anything on His own, He, could, he, he couldn't do anything unless the Father was doing it, because there was weakness in Jesus. No, obviously, that is not the case. Well, was the Father keeping Jesus from danger because Jesus was a bit weak because He was human? Absolutely not. That is not the case. The answer to this question is, why could He not do anything on His own is a very important one, and, it's, and we need to talk about it for a second. And I want to go back to the reality of the union between the Father and the Son. So listen to this. If Jesus could only do what the Father did, what does that tell us? That they are intimately connected. So then when the Father was at work, what was Jesus naturally doing? Because of their oneness, He was at work in the same thing. When the Father was speaking things and Jesus, one with the Father, would speak the very same things. I'm one who believes this, and I've said it before in the room, and I'll say it again. And if you want to come up and challenge me, we can talk afterwards. I do not believe it was possible for Jesus to sin. And here's why. God does not what? Sin. And if Jesus, I think the temptation was real. We see it in the garden. But our hope rested, and listen, our hope rests in this truthful reality. He was not going to sin. The Father's plan, is it perfect or imperfect? That's a response question. So when He planned before the creation of the world, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, that Christ would come to redeem mankind. Was that plan perfect? Absolutely. So what was going to be accomplished when Christ came? God's plan. You want to talk about why our salvation is secure? It's because God's plan for salvation is absolutely perfect. And so therefore, when we are born as His, we are His. And so Christ constantly fixing His eyes on the Father in every kind of way. Why? Because of their intimacy, because of their oneness. And so Jesus would never do anything independent from the Father. Why? Because they're one. 
They were so intimately connected that what the Father was about, Jesus was going to be about that. So therefore, Jesus would always live in agreement with who? The Father in every aspect of that. Also, here's why we should trust Christ. He's the only one who could ever see what the Father was doing perfectly. And because of that, He becomes our example and our model of why we ought to worship Him and follow Him. He's the only one who could live in such a way to perfectly please the Father. And so the Father showed Jesus everything that the Father was about. And because of their oneness, Jesus would join in that. And He even says, I'm going to do greater things than this so that we would marvel at Jesus. Now let's, let's talk about this and then we'll move on to the next thing. What that means is this. Jesus probably wouldn't have been a very good American. We like our independence, don't we? Don't tell me what to do. You know what Jesus did? He lived every moment not independent. He lived every moment what? Dependent. See, the scripture highlights this for Christians. We are to live dependent, not independent. We live dependent on God in every kind of way. Dependence is good. It keeps us connected to Him. And I believe the more close we are with God, the more we see the glory of who He is and the wonder of who He is, and the more we will want to depend upon Him and desire to depend upon Him. Thirdly, look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. His life is the very life of God. We will never find life away from Christ, ever. He knew the Father is life, and the Father had granted this life in Christ. Again, because of their oneness, they are the same as the Father is life, so Jesus is life. Now, there are a couple of, of really important things that we should consider here for a moment. That means this. As a kid, I, used to, I didn't become a believer until I was 17, but I used to think about God from time to time. And I would lie in bed at night thinking about, did God ever have a beginning? I don't understand this thing that He never had a beginning. How do you not have a beginning? And I don't know if you ever contemplated that. You can't, you can't wrestle. You can't come to any kind of conclusion. Everything we know has an origination point. And here's the reality. When the Scripture speaks about God being life, Christ being life, it points to this reality, is they have always been life. There wasn't a time where God said, okay, I'm going to become life now. No, God had always been life. So He didn't originate life in Himself. This is not, not, not the case. And therefore, because He is life, hear this, He is not dependent upon anyone else for life. He is life. The Father is life. The Spirit is life. They guide us into truth. Truth brings us into freedom. Truth brings and gives life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So therefore for us, Jesus lived this way that He's calling us to live, is that He had life in Himself, and so he, we are called to stay connected to Him who is life we must. His royal office 
as King of kings and Lord of lords is the life giver. Now the fact that it says here that the Father has life in Himself and therefore He's given life to the Son, this doesn't mean that Jesus is less than the Father. They are fully God, unique in their roles, and it is His right to give life to whom He wills. So one last time. We are not going to find life except in Jesus. We're not. So therefore, that's what must be our passion. So when Christ was here, He knew this reality. The Father is life, so I'm fixing my eyes on the Father. Now we are called to fix our eyes. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on Him who lived perfectly, who when He was here, fixed His eyes perfectly on the Father. Here's the fourth thing, 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, given Him authority. The Father's gifted this to the Son because He is the Son of Man. Here's the fourth thing that we must see, that we must embrace. Jesus embraced everything that the Father entrusted Him with. Father, you want me to come and bear the sin of the world in my body and to die as a substitute? Yeah, I embrace that. And I'll go all the way, Father. Not my will, but Your be done. I'll go all the way, Father, because I believe and I know that You are good. And because You are good and You are calling me to do this, I will do it because it is good and because You are good. So the Father gives Jesus this role of being the judge and he, and he is the Son of Man and it's given to Him because the text says there He is the Son of Man and so therefore Jesus in every aspect, just look at Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, everything that the Father asked the Son to do, He did. He embraced everything that the Father entrusted Him with. And so Christ has this right to be the judge and to be the central figure of the history of the world and the future of the world. Why? Well, He's the only one who got the full approval of the Father. He was the one appointed by the Father for this purpose, sent by the Father. And He's the one that the Father gave the authority to be able to do this. And Jesus embraced all that the Father gave Him. And He followed through in every, every single aspect of that in complete and total obedience. There was not a time he said, well, it's kind of hard today. We had a hard day yesterday. Can we take a break today? No, if the father decided the next day that he was really going to be at work, what was Jesus going to do? He was really going to be at work because he knew that the father's good and, and that obedience to the father meant good in his life and in intimacy with the father. And ultimately, Jesus will bring everything into account and he will make it right. And the truth is that He is the Son of God, and because He is the Son of God, it is why He can judge. And I tell you, many Christians today could read it out there in evangelical land, just want Christ to be love. We, they just want Him to be love and not call anybody to account for what they believe. That's not loving, by the way, is it? Do we just let our kids just do whatever? Do drugs, get drunk, have sex, do whatever you want to do. That's not loving. 
So therefore, God, in our lives, doesn't say you just live independent of me. No, you live dependent upon me. And as you live dependent upon me, you will get life. Is God love? Absolutely. But His love demands that we walk in obedience to Him. Here's the next thing. He sought the will of the Father in such a way that He completely submitted to the Father in every aspect. So He embraced everything the Father gave Him and everything He submitted. So look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. So as I hear, hear what? The Father. I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now I want to talk about this just for a second. Jesus was not... Y'all remember Jaws? The original Jaws? Y'all remember the original Jaws? Sheriff Brody's sitting at the table and his son's there and, and each thing that his dad does, the son does at the table and he's mimicking the father, each expression. So I want, I, want to, I want to make sure we get this and we understand this. Jesus is not a shadow of the Father. Where a shadow never does anything on its own. But can only mimic what the true reality does. A shadow, depending on where the light is, can be small or can be really large. But the shadow is not real. A shadow doesn't think. A shadow doesn't make choices. A shadow is just an image. It's not really anything real. You can stomp on a shadow, right? Walking down a path and the shadow doesn't say, ouch. It's not anything like that. It's not real. Jesus could think. He made choices. He talked. He was tempted. He did miracles. He is real. And he chose to live in complete unity, right in step, every part of the way in every moment of his life. He is, by the way, the substance of all things that is real and good in God. He is the creator of all things. And he is big and he is all powerful. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same essence. They are God. And so Christ in his life, knowing the goodness of God, when the Father did something, said something, called him to do something, he lived in complete submission to the Father. So therefore, what do we need to do? We do the same. We see the text. We see what God instructs. We see how Jesus lived. And because of that reality, we submit Sometimes it's hard to walk. Let's be honest. Is it hard to walk in obedience sometimes? Yes. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes this happens or we have this feeling or this has been said or whatever the case may be and, and, and we just don't have it in the moment. But, but if we will embrace the truth and we will submit to the truth then it will transform us because God will be at work as we are walking in the truth. And I believe that for Jesus, His submission to the Father and His seeking of the Father were the same. I will seek the Father 
And whatever the Father does, I will submit. I will seek the Father and submit. I will seek and submit. He didn't separate those. It wasn't, I'll seek the Father and I'll contemplate whether I should do that or not. He sought the Father and he submitted. Here's the second to last thing. I forgot I added one more point. I get to do that. Look at 31 and 32. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. He lived in the affirmation of his father. Boy, the religious leaders did not like him. They did not like him. They ended up doing everything they could do, knocking on Pilate's door at night. We got somebody we want you to kill. Will you help us get rid of this guy named Jesus? But Jesus didn't live based on the affirmation. We talked about this last week, on on the affirmation of others. He didn't allow the crowds to catch him up and make him be king and overthrow Rome. He lived desiring to walk in obedience so that he lived in the affirmation of the Father and did the Father affirm the Son. There are twice, at his baptism and at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where the Father says, this is my Son, listen to him. That's what the Father says. Listen to my Son. Listen to who he is. Because in him... I am pleased. I am highly pleased in who he is. See, Jesus knew in John 5 how the religious leaders would respond. And I tell you this, you'll see this all the time. Authentic worshipers, people who take the scriptures seriously, they rub those who make idols out of religion and spiritual things wrongly, they will rub them wrongly and they'll be upset. So we live biblically, and we can't worry about what others think. And when you and I examine the life of Christ, He was not an agenda believer other than the agenda is, I am going to walk in obedience with my Father. Guess what? Guess what application of walking in obedience to the Father has with the issues of a culture? Application to every issue, absolutely every issue. So we take a stand about a number of different things that the Bible is true about. Why do we take that kind of stand? Because we live in the affirmation of the Father and the Father's truth. And so we stand there. Again, he didn't try to overthrow the Roman government. He just lived under it, didn't he? He just lived in the reality. One day they came to him and says, hey... Shouldn't we pay taxes to Rome? Yeah, I'll pay a tax to Rome. Hey, go catch a fish and inside the fish, um, open up its mouth and there's going to be a coin in there and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He didn't say, unfair. We will, for the rest of our lives, live with things that are what? Unfair, right? Welcome to the planet. This is it. This is reality. It's going to be unfair. 
Jesus lived in an unfair... The person, the last person anybody should have ever wanted to murder is Jesus Christ. All good, all perfect, all righteous, all holy, all the things that we could say about Him. And what did the world do? No, we hate Him. Let's get rid of Him. So we live connected to the one whom the Father affirmed in every kind of way. All right, here's the last point before we move into a point of application. Jesus lived, therefore, embracing, and I'm going to use this phrase because it's popular in our world today, or in the world today in Christian circles. He lived for the objective truth of really himself and the Father and the Scripture, walking and fulfilling every single thing that was true. So I need you to hear this this morning. This is a critical point here. Jesus is the truth. He is the living incarnate Word of God. And yet while He was here, He lived for the objective truth of the Father in every kind of way. What the Father says, I'm going to say. What He does, I'm going to join Him and I'm going to do that. I'm not going to live independently. I'm going to live what? Dependently every way with my Father. So every part of Christ's life, He lived in line with the truth. The truth of the law. Jesus in the great sermon in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to what? Fulfill them. So Jesus lived for the truth. Talking to Pilate in John 18, He tells Pilate, For this reason I came to bear witness about the truth. So church, I want you to hear this. This is absolutely critical this morning. This is critical for your family. It's critical for your life. It's critical for our kids, for our church. This is critical. We must live for the truth and in the truth of God. Why? Because it's right and it's good and it brings the best benefits to everything connected to our lives. Think of the things that would be so less confusing if our lives were immersed in Jesus the same way Jesus immersed His life in the Father. And this is why we can have our eyes absolutely nowhere else. What if we followed Christ and each thing that He has instructed us? What if it mattered most to us that that all that we followed was what He says in every area of life? For example, let me give one example. What if we decided that as Christ followers, as Christians, if every Christian in America decided today we are going to live the sexual ethic that God sets forth, that Christ sets forth in the Scripture. We're going to live it. We're going to live for that truth. It's going to guide us. We're going to encourage one another to be guided by that. It is going to be what the Scripture says. We are going to absolutely, passionately not sway from it. We are going to live it. What might result if the world and if the church, just talk about the church, lived according 
as his bride to the sexual ethic that the scripture speaks about. Sexually transmitted diseases would almost end. They would. There would be no more abortions among Christians. And don't think for a minute that Christians aren't getting abortions. They are. If we lived according to the ethic of Jesus sexually, rape would be done with. No more raping. Be over with. There would be no pornography of any kind. Children, child pornography. If we lived according to the sexual ethic of Jesus, there would be no child sex trafficking. It would be done with. There would be less uh, divorces as well if we lived according to Jesus' sexual ethic because adultery just does such damage to marriages. There would be less objectifying of women if we lived according to the sexual ethic of Jesus, the objective truth that the scripture calls us to. Let's talk just for a moment, honestly, about the gender stuff. There are states in this nation right now that are pushing 10-year-olds to change their hormones to become someone that God did not make them to be. And they're trying to pass that as laws in this country today. The suicide rate among those that are confused about gender is astronomical. And they blame the church and they blame absolute truth and objective truth about that, but that's not the case. It's just unnatural to try to be someone that God has not made you to be. And the fruit of that is in Romans 1, it will always result in what we see in Romans 1. It always results that way. Look at history. Look at, look at history. Every nation that has embraced this kind of ideology in the West has imploded from within. Have you looked at the news lately? We are imploding within. And I want to be real honest this morning, and I want to place myself at the forefront. You can be at the back of the line. This is in large part a fault of the church. Is that years ago, we gave up speaking into the culture. We have chosen other things to be more important than church and walking with God and other things, and we've made those things a priority. So therefore, what has naturally happened? It's created this huge vacuum, and so what did the world do? It filled it. It filled it. And so here we are. And what I want to call us back to today is objective truth. There is an absolute truth. By the way, can you imagine living in America where there's no rape anymore? You don't hear about it anymore. That sounds good, does it not? Here's the deal. If we truly lived according to the truth of the Scripture and we embraced it, and we lived transformed, and we shared the gospel with others, and their lives were transformed like ours are, then change comes. Because I believe wholeheartedly, and I know you do too, that when Christ changes a life, He changes a life. Oh, we're not ever perfect. 
That's coming eventually. But we have a call in our life now to be this. You see, when we embrace the objective truth of God that is Christ Himself, we begin to see that God is good. These instructions from God are not to restrict our lives. They are to what? Enhance our lives. They help us. They aid us. So His counsel in just that one area brings a secure church, a secure family, a secure life. And truth is life, and it sets us free. Mm. I have four more pages that I'm going to save till next week. <laughs> Is that okay if I c- come back? Um, we, we need to talk about that next week, and I think that's a good stopping place. I cannot wait to meet my king can't wait to see his magnificent glory. Our Savior, our Lord, is so holy that his, the light and the glory of his holiness will light up heaven for all of eternity. And we will live in the light of that. But I want to challenge us about something. We should think about What's coming, where we're going. We should, we should be heaven-minded people. And yet I want to remind us that right now we're on the earth. And we should live heaven's principles here. We should be the kind of people who pray. Lord, oh Lord, my God who is in heaven, hallowed, how honoring is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where I live, here on the earth, just as it is done in heaven. And I want to call us to this. That we become the praying people that we've not been. I know we pray as a church. I know you pray. But we need to become a deepening praying people. We need to walk like Christ walked. Jesus immersed Himself in every aspect of the Father's glory. And you know what happened because of that? He went all the way to the cross, living in the affirmation of the Father, bearing our sin, now rising from dying, rising, ascending, interceding, coming again. And if you know Him today, we belong to Him. So we live not in the affirmation of a culture, which is not going to affirm, it is not going to affirm biblical principles. Do you know that? It's not. So what do we do? Well, we live biblical principles. And we do so, by the way, lovingly, not angrily. That's a word, however you say that word. We love broken people. And yet at the same time, we stand for truth. And that's Jesus in John 5. That's Jesus in John 6. That's Jesus on this August Sunday, 2022. This is who he is.
And I'd love to learn the secret sauce, wave it and figure it out. But there's not a secret sauce. It becomes, the secret is this, deciding to walk in obedience. That's the secret. And when we do so, God moves. So we'll get to the rest of this next week, some more aspects of John and how Jesus lived when he was here. Let's pray together.